Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So dealing with a debt problem goes far beyond just the financials. Blair Manton wants you to know Sands & Associates is the best firm that you can choose at this point. They are BC's largest licensed insolvency trustee firm in the province, focused on debt help services for consumers, help thousands, obviously thousands of people get a, get out of from underneath their debt and really ultimately change their lives with that financial fresh, fresh start. So Blair's got some key messages of reassurance that he and his team want you to know. So do you want to start by telling us a little bit about Sands & Associates for anybody that doesn't know, a little bit about your history even? Yeah, certainly. So it uh, used to be called bankruptcy trustees, but Sands & Associates is a firm of licensed insolvency trustees, and we're the people you should call when you need a plan to deal with your debts. So if you find yourself being stressed about your finances, not sure where to turn, don't know how you're going to be making these payments, or you're making all your payments, but you know you'll be in debt for decades to come, uh, a trustee is the best person you can reach out to to get a plan to get you back to owing nobody anything, to be able to have some financial goals in your future, uh, and to really achieve what you want to achieve on a financial basis rather than spending all of your money you know, on interest charges or things that just reoccur every month and don't get you anywhere. Uh, we were founded in 1990 um, in Sands & Associates. I'm proud to say we've grown to become BC's largest firm of licensed insolvency trustees. And all we do is help people and small businesses deal with tough debt situations. So we're not a firm that does 100 different things to 100 different clients. We're very, very competent, very experienced, um, and very uh, and we have a great reputation um, in helping people when they find themselves in tough situations. I also like the fact that, that uh, Sands & Associates believes that money problems can happen to anyone at any time. It's, it's really quite astounding to me over the years that we've been talking about this, Blair, that it's for sometimes for folks, it's just one thing that will trigger a whole host of other things. And before you know it, you're in this pit of debt and you can't figure out how to deal with it. And I like the fact that you know that going in. Absolutely, Elaine. You know, we're, we're committed to an approach of genuine care and empathy. So with each of our staff, our, our goal is to treat every client that, that reaches out to us as if they were a close family member going through a very tough time. What sort of empathy and support would that person want to feel? And that's what we aim to provide as much as we can uh, when we're dealing with our clients. And what we really want people to know is that they do have support. There's qualified solutions. Uh, they need to know where to find them. Uh, but there's absolutely light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, there's there's no debt problem that doesn't have a solution. That's what really just gives me so much energy every morning is knowing I'm going to face a bunch of problems on clients in, in different client situations, but I've got the solution to solve those problems because Canadian law is so great. It's very well written. I don't complain the government a lot, but they did a great job uh, when they wrote their insolvency laws because it really does give somebody a chance to literally turn their life around uh, in a quicker and often less expensive means than they, than they thought possible. Um, you know, oftentimes what we do as insolvency trustees, you know, part of it is the numbers and it's understanding, well, you know, what can you afford to pay back and here's how the bankruptcy should be administered. Um, but what's really, um, you know, even more interesting and definitely more gratifying on a day-to-day basis is understanding what does it feel like to be in debt. 
So what's the current situation the clients are facing uh, when they pick up the phone or walk in the door? And it's oftentimes people are at one of the lowest points in their lives. And to be able to help them to suddenly start again, to rebuild that self-worth, to get back on track, you know, that could be just such a rewarding thing for myself and for my team here. And in terms of how it feels to be in debt, you know, no surprise to anybody, it doesn't feel good. And when we survey our clients every year, we do a very detailed um, survey over a period of a couple months and release it to the media every year in January. Um, Each year, it's very consistent. Over three in five people said the reason they knew they had a debt problem was because overwhelming stress had manifested itself and they just couldn't ignore it anymore. Uh, For two-thirds of people, self-esteem was suffering because of being in debt uh, in a similar proportion their health was suffering so um, you know stress isn't good for anybody at any time and definitely we're understanding more and more how physically stress can manifest itself to the point of you know even even causing death in in certain people so uh, definitely dealing with the financial stress can often have really significantly positive physical impacts Uh, and you know finally as much as one in six people that reached out to us had said they had contemplated thoughts of suicide to deal with their financial situation again for some for a situation where we know there's a solution we know people just need to reach out to know that as much as many as one in six people just don't realize that uh, and really have some dark days and dark thoughts uh, just tells us we need to continue to do as much as we can to get the word out that empathetic and supportive debt solutions do exist. I'd, I'd like to keep talking about that part, Blair, because I think it's really important and is really significant for Sands and Associates in terms of how you and all of the staff in the offices uh, do your business and talk to people and support them and, and help them through this, the um, whatever situation. And I think the number one one that I've heard you say so many times is your your financial problems do not define you. And I think that is so embedded in people that it, that they believe it does. Um, and I think it comes from, you know, our parents and our parents' parents, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that have just sort of instilled that. But, but it's not true, especially in today's um, landscape where, boy, oh, boy, things can change so quickly for folks. Yeah, it's, it's often, you know, it's a sign of a very moral person to want to honor all of your obligations and your commitments. And when you think about it, you borrowed the money, you made a commitment that you were going to pay it back. And it's not comfortable to be in a situation where you can't meet a commitment that you've made. And oftentimes, the more moral and upstanding the person, you know, the harder that they can really take that and it can really cause, you know, a significant hit to their self-esteem and a sense of self-worth. Um, so, so much of our meetings, especially at first, is just helping people really separate that, really understand that, you know, being in debt is a temporary situation. It's not a permanent state. You are not defined by being in debt now. Um, you know, if you're in debt five years from now, well, that, that's a bit of a challenge. You didn't take the steps and that's going to start to define you, but don't let that happen, you know. Um, it's not a reflection of you of your character, you or your character. And quite often, being in debt is often not your fault. So one of my colleagues, uh, her name is Darlene, one of her uh, pieces of advice that she put on her bio, which I thought was great, is she says, financial difficulties are not a reflection of who you are as a person. They're only a symptom of something bigger that you may have no control over. And this really played out in our survey as well. As many as four out of five individuals, when we really drilled down, what's what's the issue that caused you to have to file a bankruptcy or a proposal? Four of the five top main causes were illness, injury, or health-related problems not within your control, overextension of credit due to cost of living, outpacing income, generally not within your control. You're not controlling the inflation these days that's happening. Marital or relationship breakdown, oftentimes that can come without warning, and then job-related or job loss. 
So the vast majority of situations, when I sit down and I, and I, I hear an individual's uh, story of what they've been through and what they've done, sometimes I can't find anything that they could have done different that would lead to a different outcome. And what they need to do is just start to forgive themselves a little bit for some of, you know, okay, maybe they could have tweaked a little thing here or there, but it wouldn't have resulted in a sea change to their situation. Uh, they need to be focused on what they can do now rather than judging themselves for, for their conduct in the past. Yeah, I think really good points, Blair. Um, if we're already describing you or someone you know and you think uh, they could use a hand, uh, get them to give Sands & Associates a call. The, the phone number is 1-800-661-3030. Or if you want to check out their website, please do that. It's sands-trustee.com. Now, I wanted to move on a little bit, Blair, and talk about some of the things that Sands and & Associates and, and your estate managers want people to know when it comes mm -hmm to asking for help. Yeah, absolutely. I think really top on that list is you do deserve to live with dignity. So just because you're in debt doesn't mean that you have to submit yourself to harassment, to being berated, uh, to feeling like a failure. Uh, being in debt can cause a lot of shame, a lot of self-blame, uh, but everyone is deserving of a financial fresh start. And regardless of, of any of your debt situation, you absolutely do deserve to be treated with and to live with dignity and respect. So we try to emphasize that right from the start, uh, that as humans, we've got certain things that, you know, just a base level of dignity and respect is just endemic to us. Um, and we want people to understand as well, you know, life goes on and you can and will move beyond this current challenge. So it can be really, really tough in the moment in the eye of the storm to think out, you know, two, five or 10 years and know that eventually all this shall pass. Um, but absolutely, as I've often said, you know, debt always has a solution. It's not something that's going to persist for your entire life. So you will be able to move forward. Excellent. What are a couple of other ones? I know you've got I've got a few more listed that we want to talk about. Yeah, I think just one uh, last quote that I would say here, it's from my colleague Raj, um, on, on his bio, again, one of his key pieces of advice that he gives is we can't control what happened in the past, but we can help you understand where you're at today so you can move forward to your goals and your debt-free future. So the more that we can get away from really dwelling on all that's happened in the past, all that we could have controlled or not, uh, really focus on the future, focus on that plan, get behind it and get enthused about it, um, that's where we're going to have the real transformation, the real change, the turnaround in people's lives. Are, are people or most people surprised to learn um, the kinds of things that come with figuring out debt and debt management? Every day. Um, Elena, it's sometimes it's, I enjoy my job because I feel like I'm giving good news a lot of times that people didn't anticipate. So, you know, a lot of times people feel like they're the only person facing their situation. No one's ever been through it before. And people are quite surprised to learn, um, you know, in 2019, there were almost 140,000 people in Canada across the country um, who worked with a, a licensed insolvency trustee to file either a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. So somewhere between 100 and 150,000 people year in, year out in Canada do restructure their debts. And so you're definitely not alone. Um, quite often, people are really surprised to learn um, that credit and debt borrowing, credit ratings, how everything interacts is not how they, how they typically thought. Uh, and there's a lot of education in our counseling sessions about how credit ratings actually work, about how often keeping a perfect credit rating can be at the expense of your overall financial health. So I really enjoyed that part of it, of helping people understand, you know, yeah, credit rating is a report card. You don't need to have A pluses at every stage in your life. And sometimes um, the right decision is to take a short-term hit to your credit report, restructure all the debt, and then be in a better position to save money in the future and rebuild the credit over time. So oftentimes people are very surprised to see, okay, we can have a strategy with our credit rating. It doesn't need to just be perfect at every stage. 
Excellent. And how straightforward are debt solutions these days? And how, you know, how do the processes that people can choose from actually work? I know you've got some good, good statistics on that. Yeah, well, for most people, they're very surprised to know how how actually straightforward and easy it is to file either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. It's still something you don't go into lightly. But for 80% of people, they said if they knew how straightforward it was, they would have acted more quickly. So if you think it's a very difficult, convoluted process, it isn't. Um, and I think for another thing that people are sometimes surprised is when you're dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee, the, an LIT is not paid by commission, not paid by your creditors at all. So they really don't have a vested interest in you pursuing one option or another. An LIT is just an impartial um, an officer of the court, essentially, to help you understand what your options are and help you choose the right option to move forward. I'm going to give you the phone number again. It's 1-800-661-3030 to uh, get that first appointment. Sands-trustee.com is the website. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about what bankruptcy means in Canada. It's really about understanding the basics of personal bankruptcy in Canada, because it's a little different, certainly in the United States, or maybe a lot different, depending on your perspective. But Blair's going to explain what it means to declare personal bankruptcy here, as well as debunk some of the common myths around this very often misunderstood legal debt relief process. Okay, Blair. So can you take us through what it means to file for bankruptcy in Canada? I know that's a big question, um, but I, I, the fact that it's so different than what we sort of see on television dramas every week or hear about in the United States. Yeah, you know, in, in just the, the fewest word possible, bankruptcy is not as bad as you think. And we've got a YouTube video on our channel with that title, and it's many people have this preconceived notion that bankruptcy is going to be you know, incredibly public, intrusive, they'll lose everything, they'll never recover, um, and none of those things are true. We're going to talk about a bunch of factors today of why bankruptcy can make a whole lot of sense for a lot of people and can be such a key step to enable them to have a much better life in the future by putting the past behind them. So what is bankruptcy? Well, it's a federally legislated remedy that allows you to get rid of unmanageable debt. So if you've got too much debt, um, no matter what the source is, it could be government, it could be private lenders, it could be the big banks, bankruptcy is your opportunity to get a fresh start um, unburdened by a, an amount of debt that you may never be able to, re to repay if you didn't get the help. So to be eligible to file for bankruptcy, you have to owe at least $1,000, which is a very low bar, and trust me, nobody files bankruptcy owing just $1,000 these days, um, but that's the, basically the table stakes, at least $1,000 of debt, and you have to be insolvent, and insolvent means you can't repay your debts as you're being asked to do so, or that the debts you have are worth more than the assets you have. Even if you sold everything, you wouldn't be able to pay off all your debt. Now, just because you're insolvent doesn't mean you're in bankruptcy and doesn't mean you have to file for bankruptcy. Insolvent is just a calculation you do on a sheet of paper, and many people at many points in their lives will be in a situation where they're basically insolvent on paper. They owe more money than they have assets, but very few of those people will have to file for bankruptcy. What bankruptcy is, is saying, you know, I'm in an insolvent situation, I don't see that things are going to be able to get better, and I need the relief 
granted by the Canadian government to get me back on track to give me a fresh start. So very quickly, you don't need to get permission from the court or your creditors to file for bankruptcy. You don't need to hire a lawyer to represent you. Just about every bankruptcy in Canada and everyone that I've done over the last 15 years has been a voluntary proceeding. So no one gets forced into this proceeding. It's you come and see a trustee, you decide who you're going to work with, when you're going to start the proceeding, um, and almost right away you get some relief from that debt stress and you just focus on completely Completing a bankruptcy proceeding um, to get you that fresh start. And the key that you that you included in, in what you just said is, but you do have to see a trustee. You have to go to a licensed insolvency trustee. They're the only person who can facilitate or navigate you through the system. They've got you've got the clout, you've got the legal representation to do that, and nobody else does. Exactly, Elaine. So if you need to file a bankruptcy in Canada, you can't do it on your own. It doesn't matter what lawyer you might try to hire. They're not allowed to file it either. The government created a distinct role of a licensed insolvency trustee where we're the only professionals, the only officers of the court that are empowered to help individuals file either bankruptcies or consumer proposals. And what's great about dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee is it's not like you're hiring a lawyer and you're negotiating an hourly fee and you're worried about upfront costs. Everything is free and confidential to start. And then once you go through with the proceeding, everything is set by government tariffs. So there's no surprises. So let's talk a little bit about, about the process and the various steps. And the step one, Elaine, as you alluded to, is to connect with a licensed insolvency trustee. And at Sands & Associates, we've got a number of LITs. We serve the entire province. And whether you opt for a virtual meeting, a telephone meeting, or an in-person meeting, we'll talk with you confidentially to understand and assess your situation and discuss all all of the options that are possible for you to resolve your debt. So of, of the people that we help now, about 15 to 20% of them end up filing for bankruptcy. So it's far from a sure thing when you when you phone up Sands and Associates that you'll be put into a bankruptcy proceeding. What about 85% of people or 90 are doing these days um, is filing consumer proposals, which we're going to talk about in other segments. But by seeing a trustee, you're going to get access to the full suite of debt resolution options that are available to you. And it all starts with that free initial consultation. Okay, and then step two, Blair, for someone? Well, step two, if we've had a really good discussion, we've explained the options and the person decides that they need to move forward with a personal bankruptcy, we ask them to complete an information form. So it's nothing that you wouldn't anticipate having to provide. It's things like ID, it's your most recent bill statements, your last tax return, um, you know, proof of your income. It's all the things that are going to help the trustee assemble your file and get it ready to be submitted. And all of these things can happen pretty, pretty quickly. So sometimes when people come in thinking they need to file for bankruptcy, it's because, my gosh, their wages are being garnished at 30%. They're getting, you know, 70% of what their normal paycheck would be because creditors are taking it from them before it even reaches their, their, their hands. So if we needed to work quickly, we could file a bankruptcy in as little as 24 hours and put a stop to those collection activities, those wage seizures, so someone can get pretty immediate relief once they've completed the information form, we've prepared the documents, and they've been in our offices or virtually met us with, you know, DocuSign or various things like that um, to sign the documents to start the proceeding. And, and the way to start that proceeding is two ways. You can call them at 1-800-661-3030. You're calling Sands & Associates, 1-800-661-3030. Or you can go to the website, sands-trustee.com, and start that process. So how about step number three, Blair? 
Well, so step three is you've met with the trustee, you've put the information together, you've signed the documents. Well, now you need to complete the bankruptcy process. And again, a lot of people think going into bankruptcy, oh my gosh, it's six or seven years, there's going to be notices in the newspaper, someone's going to show up at my house and start carting away my furniture. None of those things are going to happen. So what's going to happen is your trustee or your estate manager, who's a person that works very closely with the trustee, is going to guide you through the process. Our objective is the same as yours. Let's have no surprises. Let's get this done done you know, as quickly as it can be done and as inexpensively as it can be done while respecting the law. So the core things that an individual has to focus on if they file for bankruptcy, and keep in mind they're not paying any of their debts anymore, they are not have no responsibilities to their creditors, what they have to do to the trustee is every month they have to complete a statement of income and expense. So it's a one-page budget sheet, and it just shows here's the income of the household, and you provide some pay stubs to confirm it, and then where did that money go? So how much went for food, groceries, entertainment, travel, so on and so forth. You don't need to prove your expenses, and the trustee is typically not going to audit you on them, but it's important part of bankruptcy is a financial rehab, rehabilitation component, and not everyone is in bankruptcy because they couldn't budget. Some people are, but not many, um, but everyone can benefit from just having to keep a regular budget, and that's about 80% of the work that you do in bankruptcy is just keeping that budget every month. Um, aside from keeping that budget, there's going to be a payment obligation in bankruptcy that's going to be set by your income. So in the event that you're considered low income, which for an individual is with monthly income after taxes of less than roughly $2,400 in the province of BC, if you're low income, you pay just an administration fee um, over the nine-month period of bankruptcy. Again, not six or seven years, about nine months or so. Um, you pay a fee of about $2,300 set into manageable monthly payments. If you're not low income, the bankruptcy duration is longer by about a year. It's about 21 months in total, and your payment is based on your income. It can scale up or down if your income goes up or down. Um, but again, all this is explained to individuals before they start a bankruptcy proceeding. So we said you'll keep a budget. You'll make some payments based on your income. The last thing is you're going to attend two financial counseling, si uh, counseling sessions. They're normally done over video these days, occasionally in the office as well. They're great information to help you rebuild your credit, have a good financial have good financial habits emerging from bankruptcy and really move forward trying to put this in the rearview mirror and rebuild all of your credit going forward. So those are the main steps that you've got to do. You prove your income, you make some payments, you keep the budget each month, and then you attend the two financial counseling sessions. Okay. So do you want to do step four or would you like to spend this last bit of time talking about uh, the signs that you recommend someone consider personal bankruptcy? Well, let's see here. What I'm thinking, Elena, step four is, is pretty quick. So that's just basically yeah. you get your certificate of discharge. Let's talk a bit about what bankruptcy doesn't mean, because I'm always concerned, you know, people have these various mis misconceptions, and sometimes that will stop them from reaching out because they think they know something for sure that actually isn't true. So, you know, again, step four in the proceeding is you finish the bankruptcy, your trustee gives you a certificate of discharge, and that legal document means that all of those debts that were causing all those issues, they're now legally gone, full and final settlement, never again can they bother you. So that's a really important step, the trustee giving you that certificate. Excellent. Okay. And I, I agree. I think that's great. And that's why you do this work and I don't do this work on a daily basis. But there are, there's so many good examples of what bankruptcy doesn't mean for people. And it's really going up against all the myths and the ideas, the, the pre, you know, the already decided ideas that we have about bankruptcy. So let's go through those, Blair. What does, what does it mean and what doesn't it mean? 
Yeah, so a couple things first off. Again, people think bankruptcy, everyone's going to know about it. Well, they're only going to know about it if you choose to tell them, is generally how I would say it, because when you file a bankruptcy, obviously your trustee is aware, the people that you owe money to are aware, because they've got to be told to back off, and then my regulator is aware, but that's about it. There's no newspaper notice, there's no easily searchable online database, they Google somebody's name plus bankruptcy, it's just not going to show up. So in some cultures around the world, bankruptcy is very public. It is a public shaming, literally red tags on people's doors. There is nothing like that in Canada. So it's quite possible for someone to file for bankruptcy and people very close to them in their lives, sometimes even their spouses, to not be aware. And we don't advocate that. We generally say, you know, the support of the people that care about you can be really important as you go through a proceeding. But who you tell, when you tell, what you tell is generally up to you. Only the people that need to know about a bankruptcy are informed. It covers almost all the debts a person has? Yeah, this is a, a huge one because a lot of people think, um, you know, bankruptcy can only cover whether it's bank debts or private loans, but not government debts. There's various misconceptions, but bankruptcy is almost an all-inclusive type of remedy to deal with debt. The only almost is things like child support, spousal support, court-imposed fines. Like, these are the types of debts where logically you would think, okay, maybe you shouldn't be able to go bankrupt to get those reduced. But just about everything else, amounts owing to the government, whether it's GST, student loans, income taxes, whatever it might be. They can all be dealt with in a bankruptcy, including private loans, loans to government, just about anything you can imagine um, can be discharged in through a bankruptcy proceeding. So I have sometimes people say, I didn't reach out because I just thought there was no solution. Um, you should take some hope. There is always a solution to every debt problem. Um, and reaching out to a trustee can let you know very quickly how the, the bankruptcy process could be of benefit to you. And the last piece, just a, a short one, about what you're going to be deprived of. I know people get very concerned about their assets or their income at this point. Yeah. Very quickly, most people keep all of their assets following a bankruptcy. If you're going to have to surrender anything, your trustee will let you know right away. But just about everybody keeps all of their personal assets and whatnot. Um, and your wages get paid directly to you in a bankruptcy. So the payments that you have to make, you're under your control. Your trustee does not intercept your income ever in a bankruptcy. Pay attention to this website. It's sans-trustee.com. That's filled with all this good information. If you missed anything or if you know you want to take some action, give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. So this segment is all about student debt. Whether you're looking for expert advice on paying off student debt or struggling with student loans that have become unmanageable, or you know someone who is, or they're a part of your family, Blair's going to share some very professional insights and tips on dealing with student debt. So Blair, is it common that people coming, coming to a licensed insolvency trustee for help with student loans? It just seems crazy to me or so unfortunate that that is the case, but I have a feeling it is. Yeah, it's more common than you would think, Elaine. You know, it's definitely not the number one um, type of debt that, that people owe, you know, by far that that's credit cards. Uh, but it's for a certain segment of the individuals that come to see us, you know, this can be a, just a completely crippling um, obligation if they finish school and just aren't earning an income that's commensurate to allow them to pay down the debt. Or sometimes if they weren't able to finish school um, and didn't get the benefit of the education, but have that extra debt, um, you know, 
attached to them that they've got to deal with. You know, in terms of the size of student debt in Canada, we did a bit of research and I was, you know, quite surprised, but there's 1.8 million borrowers in Canada who owe Canada student loans. That's just the federal component of it. Um, the average loan balance of federal student loans when individuals were leaving school, and this is as recent as 2019-2020, was about $13,500. And within about three years of people gradu- graduating from school, about 8% of people had defaulted faulted on that debt, which is actually quite high when you compare it to credit cards or other types of, of debts. Um, you know, student loan does have a, a much higher default rate. Um, and if we look at, you know, what's the average student loan, including, um, you know, private student loans from various banks, provincial student loans, so in BC, obviously BC student loans, and then the federal component, the average balance is around 25000 So you can imagine um, someone starting off their professional life, finishing school, uh, having a debt of $25,000 that they know they've got to chisel away from. Uh, In terms of the number of people that come to see us who cite student loans as the main portion of their debt, it's about 13% of people. So about 88% of people said, uh, sorry, pardon me, that's the wrong number, about 55% of people said that credit cards were their uh, most significant financial financial challenge. But again, it's a much smaller rate, but still significant at 13% for student loans. Wow, that's an incredible number. Uh, I can't imagine starting out in your life of having completed school finally, I'm sure that's how it feels, and then to be saddled with that kind of debt. Well, and what's also the issue, Elaine, is sometimes, you know, if it was just the student loan, that might be okay. But quite often, people have been forced to accumulate other debts as well, sometimes just to make ends meet or when they're not able to work during the school year. Um, So, you know, sometimes people are juggling some credit card debt, which might have a pretty high interest rate. You know, it could be about 20%. When you compare that with also a student loan with a big balance, but ideally a lower interest rate, you know, maybe around 3 or 4%, it can lead to a situation where there's just payments being asked that the person isn't earning enough income to make. That's wow. That's a huge. Now, is there anything else you wanted to mention about that combination, student loan and credit card debt before we move on? Well, I think just in terms of the numbers, it can be useful for someone to, to hear an example. So, um, you know, if you've got a $10,000 student loan and an average rate around now is about 3.2%, uh, your monthly payment is about $185. And you might think that sounds okay. But if you've also got some credit card debt of $10,000, the interest rate on that is about 19.9%. That minimum payment is about $265. Um, so now you're up around $450 a month in minimum payment. And the credit card one, probably 90, 95% of that payment each month is just going to interest. So it's often the combination of the student loans and then the non-student loan debt that put people in a very tough position. Wow. Now, before we go any further uh, to talk about strategies for folks to manage student debt repayments, I just wanted to throw in here, if you already know that you need some assistance, that you need to talk to somebody at Sands & Associates and get a handle on either figuring out next steps or is my situation as bad as it feels right now, I'm going to give you their website at sands-trustee.com and the phone number to call to set up that first appointment, one 800 So let's talk about some strategies, Blair, for people trying to manage their student debt repayments. 
Yeah, the, the first step, and this is with any type of debt situation that you're dealing with, is just to get organized. So put things in writing, start to take a look at your budget, list all of your debts, uh, consider if there's any grace period. So often there's you know at least six months after you graduate where you're not required to make payments, but you need to understand is interest still accruing or not, um, and then identify your payment due dates to make sure nothing surprises you, uh, figure out how much your required minimum payments are each month, and then at that point you want to just take stock and say, okay, can I make those minimum payments? Is that going to fit into my budget? Uh, if the answer is yes, um, then you want to figure out, well, what's your strategy for actually paying this debt down? Uh, because quite often minimum payments, especially on credit cards, they'll keep you in debt for quite some time. Um, so what you typically would want to do is to prioritize any other debts that you're carrying, rank them by interest rate highest to lowest, and anything extra in your budget you can pay beyond the minimum payments. You generally want to pay that to the highest interest rate debt first because that's going to give you the best bang for your buck, save you the most interest later on. If you find you're not able to meet all those minimum obligations, there's a few different things that you can do. You know, one and a good place to start is to go to whoever's holding your student loans, whether it's Canada student loans, BC student loans, uh, or even a private lender, and see what options or programs they might have available to you. So oftentimes with Canada student loans, there's a repayment assistance plan. With BC student loans, there's Student Aid BC. Now, quite often, these won't be able to reduce the principal on your loan at all, but they might be able to give you a break on the interest or a holiday from payments or various things like that. So it's really important that you look and see what help is available to you directly from the lender. Um, but if you've exhausted those types of avenues, you can't make the minimum payments, um, the relief programs that are available to you just aren't going to solve your problem, then it might be the time to look at some more formal debt resolution options that can deal with student loans. And I just want to throw in the idea that your credit card is not is not one of those options. That's right. Yeah, you don't want to be just moving money around from one debt to another because typically you're spiraling higher and higher um, in interest rates and you're not actually getting further ahead. So a lot of people tend to do that. They call it you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, using credit to pay credit, but it's never a show that has a happy ending, so to speak. Yeah. So in our last sort of segment in this particular piece that we're talking about, can you sort of boil, there's so much information I know, but can you boil down a little bit how a consumer proposal and bankruptcy work in relation to a student loan? Like how can somebody tackle this? Yeah, exactly, Elaine. And what I want to give is some really clear guidance that people can rely on here. And it all comes down to how long have you been out of school in relation to your student loans. So first off, when you come to see a trustee, we're going to take inventory of all of your debts, and we're going to figure out what's a private student loan versus what's a government student loan. And very clearly, a private student loan is just something that didn't come from the government. So it came from a bank or maybe an individual. Most common, you know, it's a student line of credit from one of the big banks. Those types of student loans, there's no waiting period at all. If you file either a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, they're treated the exact same as every other debt that can either be reduced partially in a proposal or reduced completely in a personal bankruptcy proceeding. So that could happen, you know, right away upon graduation um, if you really were in a hardship situation. Now, if it's a government student loan, there's a completely separate set of rules that apply. And the key timeline to keep in mind is seven years. So the government wants you to make a good faith effort to pay off your student loans as well as you can. And if you file either a bankruptcy or a proposal before seven years has elapsed 
since you were last a student, the student loan will not be discharged in that proceeding. So you might have a ton of other debts, some private student loans and whatnot. That would all be gone at the end of a proposal or a bankruptcy. But if it's a government student loan and you haven't been out of school for at least seven years, that debt would still be carrying through at the end of the proceeding. So it's hugely important people be aware of that seven-year rule. Yeah, that's a significant one. And what if it's less than seven years? What, are there, is there any option at that point? There is. I'm so happy you asked that because there's an option if it's been five years but not quite seven years. You can, if you file a bankruptcy or a proposal, once that is finished, apply to the court to say you're still experiencing hardship. You still you won't be able to make the payments in the future. There's still a bunch of factors working against you. And the courts could still discharge the student loan after five years. And you know, even if the student loan is not going to get discharged, it still makes sense to discuss the situation with the trustee because at least while you're dealing with your other debts, the student loan is frozen. They can't can't collect from you anything like that. They can charge interest, but can't collect anything from you. So it can be a whole lot better for your situation just getting the help, even if it's less than seven years. And here's how you can do that. Sands and Associates, 1-800-661-3030 to talk to somebody about your situation. Or you can always check out the website and make an appointment through that as well. And that's sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Talking about credit, do's and don'ts and tips from Blair. So whether your goal is to establish a good credit history, pay off debt, or in some cases boost your credit score, there's a lot of aspects of credit history and ratings that folks just don't understand. Uh, and sometimes the things we think are right aren't the right outcome for us at the end. And that's why we've got Blair to talk about the credit mistakes not to make. That's where we're going to start. But first, Blair, can you start by giving some background information about credit scores, just in case somebody doesn't quite know what that means? Oh, certainly, Elaine. And I would say there's not a client that walks through the doors of Sands and Associates who doesn't eventually ask some very detailed questions, very good questions about their credit scores, their credit ratings. And it's something that a lot of folks are surprised to learn the facts um, and how much these ratings and scores can change in short periods of time. So just starting at the basics, there's two main credit bureaus in Canada. There's one called Equifax and another called TransUnion. And you've probably heard these names before because they often give press releases with, you know, new stats about delinquencies on debt. Um, and also they've been subject to data breaches. So you may have heard of that in the past where some personal information has been compromised. But these are private companies. Um, they store and share information they've collected from your Canadian creditors about how you use your credit. So each of them has a detailed record on just about every Canadian in Canada who has accessed the credit system at some time. So when you apply for or borrow funds for the first time, your credit report is created. So it's a summary of your credit history. So everything that you've done within the credit world, it starts with your first transaction. And in addition to personal information, like your date of birth, your address, employment history, and so on, uh, your credit report might have information such as the credit you use and facts about the account, such as balances and payment habits. So what's your high balance this month? Did you pay on time? What's the history there? It's also going to reflect, are there inquiries from lenders or others who've requested your credit report? So it can be an indication if someone's going all over town applying for credit six or seven times, all of those are going to show on the credit report and that can give a lender some caution before they advance funds. Uh, and there can also be some remarks in there. You can put a consumer statement yourself. Um, you know, if you've been through a bankruptcy or a proposal and want to put a statement saying here were the circumstances, um, you know, it was a car accident or something, you know, outside of my control and I want everyone to know about that. Um, you 
have the right to put that in your credit report. And then also some fraud alerts if you've been a victim of an identity theft or something along those lines. So quite a bit of information goes into your credit report. And what a lot of people are really focused on is the credit score. And this is a numerical, a three-digit number. It ranges from 300 to 900, with 300 being, uh, you know, on the very lowest possible scale, very uncreditworthy, to 900 being, you know, exceptionally creditworthy, about the highest you could get. Uh, Now, it's impossible to actually know this exact number. And some people are quite surprised. They say, well, I can go online and I can pay for my credit score. Well, yes, you can, but that's not your real credit score. That's just the credit bureaus basically selling you a number that they create, but each lender individually, so each bank, each credit card company, payday loan or whatever that does a credit report on you or credit check, they're going to calculate their own credit score. And it's a closely guarded secret about how they actually put those numbers together. So what you pay for online of your credit score, it should be indicatively correct, but in no means is it going to be your exact credit score. People are surprised to learn that. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't realize that either. Um, I still have this question. Why do people and consumers care about their credit history or what a credit bureau or bank scores them at? Like, when does that really come into play for someone? And that's a good question, Elena. And a lot of people, I think, care far too much about their credit score at every point in their life when it's really only important at certain points when you need to borrow funds, maybe for a mortgage or for a car loan. But a lot of people are focused on keeping perfect credit and sometimes at the expense of their overall financial health. financial health. But a couple things where it's really important to be aware of your credit history and credit score is you want to spot signs of identity theft. So if you're not checking your credit report at least every year, you might not have any idea that someone's opened a bunch of accounts in your name, they're running up credit. Well, you might not be held accountable for that credit. Uh, if it goes delinquent, it could be when you're ready to buy the car or get the mortgage, suddenly there's all this stuff on your credit report you had no idea about because you've been a victim of identity theft. So you want to make sure, you know, obviously all the accounts on there are yours. Um, And a lot of the time why people want to have a strong credit score is because that's what a lender is going to look at when they're ready to borrow. A lender is going to look at the credit score and the history to decide if they're going to lend you money. And if they do, what rates and terms are they going to extend to you? So someone who has a much higher credit score uh, than than lower uh, is obviously going to get better rates or get more access to credit than someone who's on the lower end of the scale because the creditor is going to think a high credit score means they've been good in the past. They're going to be good in the future and paying back all of the new borrowings. So it is important if you're going to take some action, if you're going to borrow some money, you need to pay attention to what your score is, just so you know what it is going into a negotiation. Does that make sense? That's exactly right. So, you know, if you have a goal that in, you know, three years from now, I'm going to have enough money saved uh, for a down payment with a mortgage, well, then make a plan that your credit score should be peaking around that time and start taking some steps now. Uh, if you know you've just, say, graduated school, uh, you know you're 10, 15 years off of getting into the mortgage market, you don't need to pay a whole lot of attention to your credit score. You know, yes, pay your bills on time. That's just, you know, good hygiene to do for, from a financial perspective. Uh, but managing your credit score down to the letter, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, You just really need to be careful you're not chasing a perfect credit score at every stage because your credit score can change dramatically in the matter of just a year or two. Literally, people can come out of bankruptcy proceedings, which is about the worst thing or toughest thing you can do to your credit, getting it essentially down closer to the 300 side. Uh, And then within two to three years, they can be getting mortgages approved, credit card offers with no risk premiums, nothing like that, if they've done the right thing. So it takes about two to three years to really change your credit dramatically. But even in a year or so, you can have some significant impacts on a credit score. 
I know that your website has some good information about uh, credit and how to pay attention to it. And I'm just going to give folks their, the, your website again. It's sands-trustee.com. And it's really just filled with good questions and answers on all aspects of debt, including credit, if it's something you'd like to check out before you take the next step. Um, how, how you use your credit and your personal spending habits make up a bulk of your credit history. We know that. Which has the biggest impact on your credit score? Yeah, there's some really good best practices people should keep in mind. So, you know, first off, uh, the longer you've had an account that's open, the better this is for your score. So you might have heard the advice, okay, if you're applying for credit, go and close some other accounts because it's going to look better if you don't have a whole lot of open credit. That's just completely wrong. Um, Any history that you had with those accounts, two or three years, a great payment history, never missing a payment. Once you close that account, that history is gone. So having some old accounts that you continue to use, that can be important. And yes, you can transition to newer accounts, but I'd recommend you don't close the older ones until you've built up some good history with your newer accounts. You you can remove the limits down to something very low on the old accounts, maybe not use them very much, but you do want to keep that history present there. Uh, You know, another best practice is to treat everything as important. So every debt that you have uh, has the ability to either help you on your credit report or to hurt you. And the small bills, something like a cell phone or an Internet plan, you might, you know, neglect that thing. It's the smallest bill. I'm going to pay it every couple of months or so. I don't mind the collection calls. But it's been said that more people get denied for mortgages due to unpaid cell phone bills than for any other factor having to do with credit. So be aware that a cell phone company, they know they're not going to hire a lawyer to chase you but they're going to be very quick to ding your credit if you're habitually missing payments. So make sure that you're treating all of the accounts as important. Uh, The last tip that I would give here is just to watch your balances. So it's very important that you keep your balances on your accounts less than 50%, and sometimes even less than 30% is a good idea. So that means if your credit card limit is $5,000, try not to charge more than $2,500 on that in a month, because even if you pay it off, it still shows that you went above your credit, uh, you know, above the 50% target, and maybe your creditor will think, well, there could be a risk. They're using all this credit all the time. Uh, That's better than so. Sorry, that's worse than somebody who's only using part of their balances on a regular basis. Got it. And again, I just want to mention, too, you know, we're, we give you a lot of information in these segments. Uh, check out the website for Sands & Associates. There's so much good information there. It's sands-trustee.com. And if you want to sit down with somebody and hash out your issue, just ask some really good questions in order to figure out your next step. 1-800-661-3030 for that consultation, as well as to find an office near you in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time.